This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode includes... That thing Ken always says about the real world being a more interesting game setting than any place you could imagine. A Stoker-esque follow-up to the acclaimed improvisatory game book, The Armitage Files. Our pal and yours, game designer and author, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. How to create fun and playable female characters for convention and freeform games. And how Ken fixes American healthcare and winds up sailing down the Congo with a certain ex-president, medicinal gin and tonic in hand. Welcome now to our first installment of one of our perennial segments, or perennial until we run out of them, That Thing I Always Say, in which either I, Robin, or uh, Ken will uh, establish the fundaments of Robinism or Kenism, for those of you following along at home. So we'll uh, lay out uh, various things that we are known for saying, expand on them in depth, and then you will be prepared for future podcasts where we will merely allude to them, and you at home will nod knowingly. And uh, at this installment of That Thing I Always Say is something that Ken always says, which is that no invented setting is more interesting than the real world. Ken, would you care to unpack that for us? Uh, it's basically, uh, this is, uh, as are so many things I always say, uh, it is basically true for everyone with the single exception of a transcendent genius. So one can certainly argue that, say, Fritz Leiber's Newan is more interesting than some parts of the real world, say, Minot, North Dakota. But in general, nothing is more interesting than the real world because the real world is full of chaotic uh, causes that we did not create as uh, artists or writers. And those chaotic causes are, of course, people living their own lives and doing their own things and having their own histories and mythologies and weird beliefs. And if you look at anywhere up to and including Minot, North Dakota, you will find plenty of those things. And all of them are going to uh, basically, by definition, spark some sort of possible story arc. And therefore, if you are creating a setting, you should begin with whichever part of Earth most closely corresponds to the kind of story you want to tell. So if you're doing a Western, try setting it in the West. Or failing that, you could set it in a similar uh, incidence of uh, uh, one culture moving into another culture, displacing it, and turning the land from a nomadic uh, uh, economy to a uh, agrarian economy. So you could do a Western in Roman Britain, you could do a Western in Siberia, you could do a Western in Australia, any kind of uh, time and approach where those sort of factors play out. Uh, can give you the same sorts of stories that a Western can give you, or some of the same sorts of stories, because obviously if they're Romans, not Americans, it's going to have that frisson of difference that may be why you're looking to set uh, your Western initially on some imaginary elf continent. But the world is better researched, it's better play-tested, there's more maps for it, and fundamentally, your audience, be they reader or gamer, are going to have more buy-in if you're telling a story of... Uh, King Arthur, or Wyatt Earp, or Robin Hood, than if you're telling the story of Kragar the Lost, Kragar the Killer, or Kragar the uh, Robber, because they've never heard of Kragar, and no matter how many pages of the setting material they read beforehand, they're not going to care nearly as much about Kragar as they already care before you did anything about King Arthur, or Wyatt Earp, or Robin Hood. And so therefore, at the very least, if you're going to shorthand your character, say something like, 
This is the Robin Hood of the elf planet, or whatever it happens to be. Always refer back to Earth, but fundamentally, start with Earth. Do it as an alternate history, do it as a secret history, do it as a world where magic exists, do it as anything you can do. But the closer you stay to Earth, the more interesting and the more connective your world is going to be for the audience. So how would you explain, then, the attraction of people to imaginary worlds that take them away from the earth they know? Why Why doesn't everyone follow this maxim? Why is it and not an everyone, a thing everyone says instead of a thing that Ken says? Well, I think in this case, you're looking at a conflation of uh, science fiction, which is uh, very much uh, wound up in world creation as a exercise in applied astrophysics or an exercise in applied um, futurology and cultural physics with uh, the sort of imaginative literature that we are creating and emulating in role-playing game design. And science fiction sets a lot of their uh, activities on other planets or uh, in other worlds because it is an accepted assumption of science fiction that such a thing will happen. And because for about 40 years, people were playing around with the options of having a, a heavy gravity planet where everyone had to be flat or a world where you could live on a water molecule or all the other kind of weird uh, sense of wonder type experiences. But if, you, if you'll notice, as we've gone on and on and on, more and more and more science fiction writing is being set on Earth. Um, uh, as I think William Gibson says, we live in a science fiction novel now, and the only question is, are we living in a dystopia? And uh, that is something that plenty of science fiction authors have done, is set their stories on Earth, and I think more and more of the best science fiction is being set on Earth. As far as fantasy, uh, we were all thrown off by Professor Tolkien, who, being a transcendent uh, linguistic worker with an uh, understanding of the medieval epic and romance that is not vouchsafed to most mortals, was able to uh, retrocreate a uh, convincing imagined secondary world basically by taking everything that he liked, again, off of Earth, off of fundamentally off of the ancient matters of Britain. And so, because Tolkien was able to do it, people have, ever since then in the fantasy field, think, well, if it's not got a giant map of an imaginary elf planet on it, it's not proper fantasy, ignoring the fact that, say, uh, Robert E. Howard was able to uh, do an awful lot with Earth, or even the fact that Tolkien implies that Middle-Earth uh, when it uh, bends around uh, after the end of the age, will become our Earth. And so that uh, the reason that Middle-earth works is not because of the imaginary uh, effects that Tolkien added to it, the the, the, the the ants and such. It's because of the parallels and the resonances with actual Earth. So you would argue that when people are talking about their affinity for world building, that they uh, when they pick up a new series of fantasy novels, that what they're looking for is the... A world and the way it is constructed, that that's some form of a false consciousness on their part? They've been led astray historically? I'm saying that what they're looking for is the equivalent of looking for the arm movements in a, in a gymnastics exercise. Those are part of the gymnastics exercise, but the fundamentals are the actual gymnastics. And the actual gymnastics of world building are the ones that are being done all around us right now by the world that we're on. Because I would argue that there is are strong constituencies of people for whom uh, there is a desire to move into an imaginary world. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, one that comes to mind immediately is the question of expertise around the gaming table. So that uh, people are uh, worried if one of them knows a lot about revolutionary Russia or the uh, Irish prehistory or uh, 
whatever the setting happens to be, that they're going to be uh, creatively put in the back seat by the person who knows everything up and down. And that although certainly that can be the case with someone who has memorized all of the vampire source books, or as the uh, huge fan of Glorantha who knows that chapter and verse, and that can certainly be a problem uh, with people playing in that world, that with uh, the historical setting, people feel intimidated if they are not historians. I think certainly people feel intimidated if they're not historians, but I, I would question whether the intimidation is any more has any more effect on the gameplay or on the game table than being intimidated because you didn't read Glorantha. And I would argue further that any connection that you may have with an imaginary world is secondary to your connection to anything that happens in human history simply because of the possibility of expanding on it into a direction that you do know. So if it's set in revolutionary Russia and you don't know anything about revolutionary Russia, but you you know, remember the Cold War, you at least have a way in. Whereas if you've set the game on Glorantha or, or Ringworld or somewhere and someone hasn't read it, you really don't have a way in that isn't, you know, sitting down and cracking that giant tome. Because the thing about a, a setting that's a more of a think-it-up-as-you-go-along setting than Glorantha, which is very uh, detailed and has been very laid out and does have that same problem of expertise, but let's say something like uh, various iterations of Greyhawk in D&D, where uh, at certain eras in the history of D&D, Greyhawk has been laid out in detail like any other world. But in other uh, eras, it has been treated as sort of a portmanteau world where you feel free to just add stuff as you go along. And so if you are a player in one of those settings, the advantage of that is that you can say, uh, well, I think there's a tower over here. And you, uh, although certainly a good GM is going to say in a historical game, yes, of course, there's a tower over there. There is a problem of imagination or, or permission, I guess it is, with people who I, I think a lot of players kind of freeze up when they are playing a, an unfamiliar historical setting. I think you're absolutely right. The players do freeze up uh, in those kind of situations. And I think that that's, uh, that's, a, that's a crime and a shame that that happens, and it needs, you know, like everything else that goes wrong at the table, it needs to be fixed by better play, better GMing, and the rest of it. Um, it it's like if someone doesn't have uh, the the the, the uh, background in reading to appreciate Shakespeare, that doesn't mean Shakespeare isn't the direction you should be aiming. It just means that you need to um, uh, do more reading and more watching of Shakespeare, and so therefore you will get better at it. Um, I think that... Uh, as I mentioned previously, in, in the context of science fiction, there is something fun about just windmilling your arms wildly and creating things that go smacking into a, a world, whether that world be Greyhawk or some, uh, you know, traveler planet where uh, the, the air is full of argon gas and so everything glows faintly or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and that is a, a fun exercise, but the end result of it is to create a world with no grounding except in that, you know, brief moment of creativity, and you have to keep doing that and doing that to keep getting that hit. Whereas you can never, in a in a created world, stumble on something you always recognized, which is, um, unless your created world, again, is tangent to the actual Earth. And if that's um, uh, going to happen, then, again, starting with Earth will save you a great deal of time and effort. Now, another aspect that I find very interesting about Earth history, but that I think people who wish to engage in escaping, escapist fantasy sometimes want to distance themselves from is the complexity 
of real human morality versus the good versus evil trope that we see in so much pulp adventure fiction of whatever genre. And that people find it easier, that part of the fantasy of fantasy in particular is that it's not really a medieval world. It's not really even a version of the Old West with glaive guisarms, as uh, Jonathan Tweet sometimes argues, but it's a fairy tale world. It's a happy uh, world with codifiable morality. In the case of D&D, you know, depending on, again, the edition, uh, mechanically quantifiable good versus evil. And that the real people are messy and they let you down and heroes are harder to come by. Well, again, I would point you to the vast panoply of uh, fiction uh, set in our real world with good and evil as sharply delineated as any uh, D&D uh, source book. Um, certainly the notion of cartoonishly evil bad guys is not uh, unknown, even in actual history, uh, once you start digging around for it. Yes, they, it's the, the bad guys are really easy to find, but the good guys are a little tougher to find. That The uh, people who we think of as, as heroic, when you look under the uh, reality of human experience, uh, tend to be uh, sort of uh, nasty, or they let you down, or they disappoint you in a way that I think a lot of people don't want to deal with, just as they don't want to deal with the reality of the news and the horrors and atrocities that they see going on around them in the real world even now, that I think that there's a group of people who see imaginary worlds as a place to retreat to, as sort of an emotional safe haven. Well, if the only place that you can believe um, in uh, the uh, goodness of people that you meet on the street is in uh, fairyland, then that is going to be something that you've got to sort of work through for yourself. I'm not going to be able to talk anyone. You know, as the man says, you can't reason someone out of an opinion they were never reasoned into. Um, do you feel that that's a real phenomenon, though, that that, that is part of why people are drawn to imaginary worlds? I, I, I try not to, you know, psychoanalyze people's taste in imaginary worlds one way or the other. I think that that's certainly maybe part of it. But since they're, those same people seem also to be drawn to similarly bright-lined moral fables set in our world, I don't know that it's the nature of the fantasy world that is what's drawing them there. I mean, these same people are also reading Harry Potter, which is set, you know, in England. Uh, they're, they're reading, um, uh, the, you know, whatever... Uh, other kinds of, you know, the Dresden Files, which are set uh, uh, ostensibly in Chicago. So uh, it's not that real-world uh, uh, bright-line morality fiction doesn't work for the same audiences. Um, I think that if they are believing that their own interactive fiction can only work if they're taking place on Elf Planet, not on Earth, then I would say, again, that that may be the fault of the GM, that the GM is is making people see the dark, horrible side of Harriet Tubman when they're playing the awesome game of the Underground Railroad, instead of just giving her the same um, uh, uh, courtesy that you'd give to Aragorn and stepping back a step and saying, no, she's an awesome badass ranger. Uh, let's, you know, gloss over your discomfort with her fundamentalist religious beliefs and get on to the part where she's saving slaves. I had an interesting reaction to my decision to set Hill Folk in a, a very sort of imaginary abstracted version of 10th century BC, which is that, oh, well, if it's in the real history, I guess the game will be all about people dying during childbirth and having dysentery, uh, which is an odd uh, response. And of course, the, the answer to that is, well, actually, there's a raft of historical fiction from every era, and very little of it consists entirely of people dying of childbirth and of dysentery. But there is, I think, that 
perception out there, and it's interesting to ask yourself how you combat that. I think um, in something like Hill Folk especially, uh, you can say, no, absolutely, if you are planning, because it's, 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 it's a game about dramatic uh, uh, confrontation with the uh, with the boundaries of emotional and, um, uh, and, and uh, realism in that way, that if you want your setting to sort of emphasize those elements, yeah, have plenty of uh, childbed death and dysentery in it. Your heroes won't be dying of it. Right, but this was a case of someone who didn't want to go near it because he th- thought that that's all it could possibly be. Well, again, then that person needs to read more historical fiction, like you say. Uh, there's, 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 there's very little that you can do except, add by example, lead them into a world of um, a medieval samurai that does not actually discuss their dentistry. Um, and we, fortunately, there are many such games already in existence. And speaking of samurai dysentri- uh, dentistry and or dysentery, I guess that brings us to the end of That Thing Can Always Say. Now it's time to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Steve Moss asks Ken and Robin, after the two Bookhounds books, how messed up would a Height Laws sequel to the Armitage Files be? Mental plutonium? Uh, well, once again, this is a variation of the uh, how can you stand to be so awesome question, and it requires us, I guess, to explain to some of our lim- listeners who uh, and what these books are being referred to. These are uh, the first Bookhound book is uh, Ken's amazing tour de force for Trail of Cthulhu, uh, Bookhounds of London, uh, which could be quickly encapsulated as... As the uh, Ninth Gate meets the Cthulhu Mythos, or searching for the Necronomicon to sell it to someone who will destroy the world so you can make the rent. And it's both a uh, London source book and a crazy book collector campaign source book as well. Uh, the uh, other book is actually called Dream Hounds of Paris, and that's in the writing stage at this moment. Uh, I'm the uh, lead writer on that with contributions from Ken and from Steve Dempsey. And that is both the Paris book and the Dreamlands book. And the hook there is that the uh, surrealists in the late 20s and early 30s discover that they can consciously reshape the Dreamlands in a way that previous artists have done so unconsciously. They learn how to manipulate it. And then uh, there's sort of a sandbox game that ensues as they try to use their power over the Dreamlands to affect uh, politics and affect a mental revolution in the real world. And then the final uh, book that Steve mentioned is The Armitage Files, which is another Trail of Cthulhu book that I wrote. And it is a improvise your own massive epic campaign book based on a series of documents uh, that you uh, get from uh, Professor Armitage, which he has received, has no memory of having written, and seemed to be being sent back from the future. And so there's all sorts of clues and story hooks in these, and then the players can latch onto them and go in whatever the direction they want in order to avert the increasingly horrible world that you see described as the documents start keep arriving and get crazier and crazier as they go on. And although we don't have uh, plans right this second to do a... Uh, Height Law's uh, book on the Armitage Files, you are working with another of our esteemed collaborators on a similar structured book for Knight's Black Agents. I am indeed. I'm working with the lovely and talented Gareth Hanrahan uh, on 
a book called The Dracula Dossier, in which uh, the uh, heroes, the players, uncover a copy of the unredacted edition of Dracula that the British Secret Service suppressed back in 1897, uh, as it has been annotated by three generations of British Secret Service personnel. And so where the Armitage Files presented the document dump as uh, clues to the future, uh, the Dracula dossier will present the document dump as leads into the past, as befits a proper gothic. And uh, I am basically doing all the fun part of making up the uh, the exciting uh, edge cases and weirdness and uh, setting the sort of general direction, and then I will bring Gareth on to do all the hard, ugly slogging, because that is the way that... Um, uh, Pelgrane Press founder Simon Rogers wants us to treat the Irish. If, if only Gareth were here to speak up for himself and emancipate himself somehow from this uh, terrible oppression that you've subjected him to. Well, technically that Simon has subjected him to. I'm only taking a, um, a subcontractor's salary to do it. But in that case, why don't we let Gareth uh, speak up for himself? So we are now segueing into uh, the first of a segment called Ken or Robin Talks to Someone Else. And in this case, we are taking opportunistic opportunity of the fact that our uh, pal and collaborator Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is currently uh, chained up, I believe, in Ken's basement. Is that the situation, Gareth? Pretty much. But it's a lovely basement we chained up in. It's full of books. It's great. Just leave me there. Oh, well, I, I'm glad that you're so uh, reconciled to your uh, oppression. One has to look on the bright side. So how has the process of spitballing the Dracula dossier been? What have you been hashing out with Ken? Basically, we started with looking into Bram Stoker's life and how he could have possibly gotten hold of the secret files relating to the British government's attempt to recruit Dracula as an agent or asset. And from there, we've been sort of wandering through history towards the present day looking for interesting things that <coughs> could be connected to Transylvania, the British Secret Service, or ideally both. And the next step now is to slam it all into some sort of form of gameable narrative. Right. Now, Ken mentioned uh, uh, somewhat jokingly that uh, uh, we are uh, keeping you oppressed, but actually you're doing uh, yeoman work uh, for the Pelgrane line because quite often game companies often find when they're smaller companies and they're putting out a big core role-playing book is that they then don't have the opportunity to immediately release another big source book because the designer and main team for the main game is working on getting the book out, but we're able to rely on you to sort of concurrently work on a cool, big, chunky source book while the main game is sort of in the late stages of development. And the first time we did that was with uh, Dead Rock 7, which was an Ashen Stars uh, supplement that uh, was a collection of four adventures, and by the time this airs, we will know whether or not it won the any award that it was nominated for. And I thought I could get you to talk a bit about the process from your point of view of how it was like taking sort of a basic outline of these four adventures and fleshing them out. It was oddly familiar, actually. I got my start doing role-playing writing, working on convention scenarios, where the standard practice is to write a you know four-line blurb about a year before the convention, and then come back months later, work out what on earth you meant, and build a scenario around that. So treating your outline as sort of a aspirational blurb and working from there was, was that fairly familiar and well within my wheelhouse. Oh, very tricky. Uh, uh, viewers will note that uh, Gareth has used one of the stale past uh, words of a past Gen Con buzzword con uh, contest. Again, by this time, we will know who used the a horrible and insidious word incubate to the greatest effect, and we'll have a, an update on that on a later episode. Um, and so how did uh, 
your experience working on Dead Rock 7 filter into uh, the Zelazny Quartet, which maybe I'll get you to explain a little bit more about. The Zelazny Quartet is a series, again, of four linked adventures, this time for Nice Black Agents, Ken Heights game of vampires versus spies, or spies versus vampires, or generally spies being eaten by vampires, is the way it turns out. Uh, again, Ken provided the uh, initial outline, which I then mangled, twisted, and folded into four adventures. The gimmick which he came up with, which I'll blame him for for the rest of time, was to base it partially on the classic masks of the Lathotep adventure for Call of Cthulhu. Which is a high bar. Indeed, but the bit we took from that was the idea that you could play the adventures in any order. So you can go from Eastern Europe to the Middle East to um, Switzerland or Switzerland to Eastern Europe to the Middle East to in any uh, order. So we had Which is easy to say when you're not the one who has to uh, execute that. Indeed. It, it looks great on, on a pitch document and then you're actually doing it and your head starts bleeding. So how did you tackle that problem? How did you solve the, the difficulty of making them connect in four different possible ways? Um, basic solution was to pack it so full of links that the player characters always be able to find a way forward um, and then we put on what I call a capstone encounter to each adventure. So if you're playing, say, the um, Zlazi Sanction, which is the first adventure, as the first adventure in it, then that describes how you uncover the conspiracy and get chased across uh, Eastern Europe to uh, a refuge arranged for you by a now-dead CIA asset. However, if you're playing that as the last adventure in the quartet, then once you get to that refuge, you find out that you've been betrayed there, and there's a final confrontation with the ultimate bad guy. Uh, so you can use that at the end of the campaign. So basically, each adventure can also be adapted to serve as the capstone of the whole campaign. So in a way, it's sort of a macro version of the way a well-structured gumshoe adventure is laid out, which is that there is a mystery to solve. Uh, and in this case, uh, it uses the Knight's Black Agent's formula of the... Uh, you need information to get you out of trouble, and the more information you get, the more trouble you're in. But that a, a well-structured gumshoe adventure has many different paths to solving the, the final mystery at the end. And this kind of turns each of the four adventures into a uh, chunk of scenes in, in sort of a, a mega uh, campaign, as it were. Exactly. And also the, uh, here, the final boss, effectively, at the end of each adventure, differs depending on which one it is. So if you play... Um, the Boxman, which is this um, sort of heist movie takeoff as the final adventure, then the information in that is the thing that helps you bring the conspiracy down once and for all. If you play it as a middle adventure, that's just one clue that leads you on to your final confrontation. Um, and so I guess at this point, uh, Gareth, I would uh, maybe you could give us a uh, quick tour of your uh, career as a uh, sterling professional uh, role-playing writer. How did you uh, get dragged into this crazy mess? As I said, I started working on convention scenarios and put them up online. And then out of the blue, I got an email from, I think it was Greg Benage of, or Benage, I'm not sure how one pronounces his name, of Fantasy Flight Games many years ago to do a small bit of work on Blue Planet. And from there, I did a small bit of freelancing for various companies, um, like Hogshead on Noblis. And then I got laid off from my tech job, which was a very, very great blessing because I hated that job immensely. 
and started doing um, that was coincidentally, coincidentally around the time that D20 took off so we spent many many years churning out D20 supplements for people like Mongoose and by churning you mean lovingly handcrafting yes yes they were all lovingly handcrafted <laughs> Um, and so my, my final question would be, is, is Ken mistreating you? As I said, I have all the books I can eat, so what more could I want? Okay, well, anyone uh, who, who meets you will uh, realize your uh, mutant superpower, which is that you are uh, of ordinary height from the waist up and extremely tall from the waist down. It's true. How have you used this superpower uh, in, in your daily life? Mainly um, picking things off high shelves. With my feet. Uh, well, if you uh, see Gareth at a uh, convention, you can ask him either uh, about his current projects, including perhaps uh, the Zelazny Quartet or the Dracula dos- dossier, or you can ask him to pick something high up with his feet. Thanks a lot, Gareth. Thank you very much. Well, from sod huts to gaming huts, uh, we move into the gaming hut, and uh, Robin has uh, furnished it today with a topic near and dear to his heart. Robin? Uh, We're looking at how to write fun, playable female uh, characters, uh, pre-generated characters particularly, uh, for convention games and free forums. And this is something that I've been hearing a little bit about lately, uh, which is that uh, women who want to come to uh, conventions and either play a tabletop game or play a cool character in a uh, free form find that the characters are sometimes uh, disappointing and uh, hard to play because they are uh, written from somewhat too much of a dude perspective. So I thought we would look at ways to uh, make characters that uh, people are comfortable playing and will have fun playing. And I guess the first thing to ask yourself when you are uh, writing a female character, and obviously this is something that uh, the uh, dudes might have a little bit more uh, challenge with than uh, uh, women who are writing this material, is to create a character like any character that works from that character's point of view. That people have uh, motivations and do things for a reason, and they're not uh, operating just as projections of perhaps the cliches that you find in pulp entertainment. So, for example, if you uh, just write up a character as an evil seductress, that's uh, difficult to play because that character has no reason to be an evil seductress. Whereas if you uh, create a goal uh, for that character, it makes them seem less like a trope that you may or may not want to play than someone who it becomes accessible and that you can understand and you might understand why they would go out doing those things. You basically give them a goal to accomplish that may or may not be an evil goal for the perspective of the rest of the game table and the power seductress and let them go do it, I guess, would be your argument. Right. And I think also, though, that you want to look at the question of how comfortable is it to show up particularly to a free form or a, a convention run where you don't necessarily know everybody at the table and then be called upon to add sexy time into a tabletop role-playing session or into a free form. Uh, this uh, may be fun for some people, but it's not necessarily something that you want to impose on 
uh, whoever shows up and happens to be your female player at the table. Yeah, I mean, you certainly don't want to assume that the um, uh, that the role of the female character is to add the the sex interest. That's that's what Hollywood does. It's not what we have to do in tabletop. Um, I think that the general assumption that a lot of uh, uh, people do. Uh, is that they assume that uh, Indiana Jones and Lara Croft are basically the same person. And so you write a n- sort of g- <laughs> genderless male hero and say that if a girl shows up, she can certainly play him because we're none of us sexists around this game table, by golly. And uh, I suppose that that is uh, certainly, um, it- it's less than ideal uh, in that it's less than ideal to write anything that is um, not going to be an organic part of the story. But... Is that um, uh, is that a deal breaker? Given that your other option is uh, possibly going to be an evil seductress, or is there some third alternative that I am not familiar with? Because either because I'm neither female nor writing an awful lot of pretense these days. Well, I think the thing is to look at uh, the range of uh, characters that uh, you would design for a guy to play, or that you would design as male, and then just sort of flip them and see. What happens if you, even if you take sort of the cliches of uh, whatever genre it is and just sort of reverse the gender, often you can get something that is kind of interesting and fun. So, for example, in the Western, uh, you've got the cliche of the old uh, sidekick, the one who's sort of, I'm I'm Walter Brennan, right? And that's a standard character. And if you look back in the whole canon of Westerns, I can think of one time when they took that character and made it a woman, and that was uh, Calamity Jane in Deadwood. So if you uh, take the the cliches and find a way to sort of turn them on their head in a way that is fresh and original rather than, oh, you get to be the woman and that's the most interesting thing about you, come up with an interesting character and either then create two variants of that character so it can be played uh, in either gender, because, of course, particularly in a tabletop game, you can't predict who's going to show up at the table. You could get uh, four women and two guys. You could get uh, five guys and one woman. Uh, It could be any arrangement, and a lot of uh, women are comfortable playing male characters. In a lot of ways, I think they feel that that's a little safer, because in some cases, there is the fear that you have to be aware of that some people have had bad experiences playing, uh, who they show up to play, and then they find out there's sort of a creepy undertone of uh, sublimated, uh, not maybe not raising to the level of harassment, but maybe it is. That yeah, I was going to say, plenty of times um, I've heard that it's a creepy overtone. It's Yeah. That it all becomes about the female character's charisma stat and all kinds of other god-awfulness. Now, there's a certain level at which the advice that we give on a podcast is not going to assist with uh, that problem except to say, you know, don't be a creep. Yeah. But if, if you're setting out to be a creep and if that's your agenda or if uh, you turn into a creep as soon as a, a woman shows up at the game table, uh, that's something that we can't argue you out of, although it's something I certainly hope that people have more of a uh, consciousness about, just as at, in, in any game session you want to pay attention to what people are comfortable with and sort of move the game, if you're a GM in particular, or even if you're another player, you want to move it in a direction that everybody is comfortable doing. So, uh, And certainly, uh, it's not necessarily fun to show up and sit down with a bunch of unfamiliar guys and then find yourself having to 
uh, play a sexual fantasy that's been written out in pre-gen form. Yeah, I think um, I think in general the notion of a pre-gen at, at a at a convention table, certainly in something like uh, Call of Cthulhu, which is what ninety percent of my pre-gen experience is, or Star Trek, both of those uh, <laughs> for one reason or another turn out to be fairly uh, simple things to write uh, uh, characters that are equally unconvincing as men or female, or as male <laughs> or women. And so uh, the, the, the complaint that my character doesn't have any motivation to go into this haunted house is true whether your character has breasts or not. Um, and likewise, uh, in Star Trek, you beam down onto the planet because that's where the story is, and it doesn't matter if you're a yeoman or an ensign. Although those two settings are, have a big contrast in the way that they handle the character's uh, sexual charisma and how that is used in problem solving. Because, of course, in classic Lovecraftian fiction, the whole element of uh, sexuality in men and women is really pushed to the background. And you certainly don't see any Cthuloid investigators in his uh, stories who are, you know, getting clues through their sex appeal. So the uh, equivalent version, for example, in uh, other gumshoe games of getting information by flirting with people is not in the main uh, Trail of Cthulhu book because you just don't see that in Lovecraft, where, of course, Kirk uh, solves a lot of problems by being uh, a suave seducer. Something like a third of the episodes, in fact. Right. And that's uh, sexist in its own way. It can be sort of fun if you uh, are able to take it in the uh, sort of lighthearted way it's intended. Uh, but if you flip that character and you make a, a f female Kirk who uh, gets her way by seducing all of the green men she runs into, that gets us into a territory where we feel kind of weird about that. And uh, uh, the, you know, the f female uh, starship captain, Captain Janeway, uh, wound up being, uh, I think, sort of a reaction completely in, in the other direction. And she was sort of a, uh, almost sort of a, your, your mean English teacher as a starship captain in order to keep her away from uh, any uh, overtone of that. Yeah, and I don't think that um, Seven of Nine seduced her way out of problems necessarily, um, in, even though she was obviously the, the, the lead character on uh, Voyager after she was introduced. Right. She wound up being the uh, the Spock stand-in after right. the, the hologram proved uh, not quite Spocky enough. Sort of the Spock slash Worf because she could also beat things up because she had board power. Right. Um, and so that's an interesting, uh, you know, that's a great model of a character, probably more interesting than Janeway. And, and if you take a look at Seven of Nine, she had a conflict that was unrelated to her sexuality. Occasionally that came into play in, in the narrative, but it wasn't a big element. And so I think that's a great model for a character that's fun to play. She has a fun hook. She's the, the Pinocchio character, uh, as there always is on a Star Trek, who's trying to become more human or possibly not become more human, depending on where her dramatic pulls are in any uh, given episode. And that that gives you a, a model for a character who doesn't have the, the sort of uh, lascivious overtones that some other characters do. Yeah, and I, I think that in general you can look at uh, female uh, characters in genre fiction maybe and use them as your model if you're stuck. Um, you can look at uh, even a character that is as obviously and overtly sexualized as Catwoman. If you look at gen what has generally been her her great conflict, her internal conflict in the 
stories is that she doesn't necessarily know whether she wants to be a real villain or she's just playing. And that's really sort of her, you know, her literally her cat-like nature, which, while obviously, you know, gendered in various problematic ways, is not going to get you in nearly as much trouble as if you do a Modesty Blaze, which will get you in huge amounts of trouble, I think, at any game table in the land. Yeah, and, and I think that the other point is just that there are things that we are comfortable enjoying as passive entertainment that are more problematic when you are asked to act them out. And so uh, if you, you can sort of create those little hooks so that if uh, someone at the table, whether it's a woman playing a female character or a guy playing a female character, and that can be another problem too, is that uh, I've also heard uh, objections, and I think rightfully so, to uh, guys who uh, play their female characters in a way that brings an uncomfortable level of uh, sexual fantasy to the table at uh, where you're uh, not necessarily wanting to deal with somebody else's uh, a weirdo, uh, that kind of role-playing <laughs> at a role-playing convention. Yeah, once again, um, uh, so many of these problems are solved by running Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> uh, yes. We, we have no time for your, for your creepy fantasy. It is now time for Lovecraft's creepy fantasy. Yes, because, of course, the, these images are hard-baked into a lot of the, the genres uh, that we uh, love and practice in role-playing. Certainly fantasy... Uh, the, there's you have the Tolkien strain, which is uh, pretty demure and chaste, but then you have the uh, Robert E. Howard uh, pulp strain, which uh, we find on uh, the sides of '70s vans throughout the land. <laughs> and uh, there's uh, you have to understand, I guess, the difference between uh, what you might enjoy reading about and what's cool to ask other people to uh, perform for you. Yeah, well, I think we've furnished the inside of the gaming hut um, uh, quite tastefully for a couple of dudes talking about. Uh female gaming. Um, so now we move on to our second uh, installment now of uh, Ken's Time Machine. And as you'll recall, uh, in Ken's Time Machine, uh, Time Incorporated asked Ken to go back in time using his uh, vast historical knowledge of uh, decision points in, uh, in history, and also uh, sometimes his ability to uh, get people drunk and inveigle them. I'm not sure how well it will uh, work out this time in that instance. Uh, time Incorporated's other rule is no baby smothering. And this uh, question is perhaps somewhat less exciting than having Annie Oakley assassinate uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. Uh, but this is uh, an idea that came up when we were first uh, mooting the idea of this segment uh, many moons ago at Dragon Meat. And this is uh, the historical question of why it is difficult for the U.S. to have developed the universal health care system that all of its equivalent industrial uh, countries have. And perhaps you could start out by explaining the uh, footnote in history that has rippled forward to make that uh, the fraught thing that it is. As you uh, know, uh, at Time Incorporated, the, there are certain sort of standard uh, uh, things that we do when we're asked to fix some sort of uh, historical problem. It's the equivalent when you call the computer tech support and they ask you, is it plugged in, and have you tried turning it on and off? Uh, at Time Incorporated, we say, have you tried eliminating Woodrow Wilson, and have you tried <laughs> killing Hitler? Well, of course, the problem with killing Hitler, as Time Incorporated well knows, is that there's an ablative level of other time travelers and distortions to the chronovortex, which make Hitler killing, even baby smothering Hitler killing, 
impossible. Woodrow Wilson, on the other hand. Yeah, Wood- Woodrow Wilson um, uh, is, is generally the go-to guy for anything that's wrong with America or really the rest of the world. Um, in the 20th century and beyond. And uh, certainly, even if uh, getting him out of the way doesn't solve the problem, it will at least make you feel better as you go on to doing the other thing. But in this particular case, um, killing Hitler or in otherwise uh, preventing World War II is the thing that prevents uh, American healthcare from going off on its uniquely dysfunctional tangent. Because the fundamental problem uh, from both uh, right and left wing perspectives in American healthcare is that American healthcare is not connected to either your citizenship or to uh, your uh, willingness and ability to pay for it. It's connected to your employment. And that is because during World War II, the uh, various companies were operating under wage uh, freezes uh, installed by uh, uh, patriotic idiocy. And in order to compete for scarce workers, offered paid health insurance as a uh, employment benefit. And that became such a popular way to give sort of invisible raises that it uh, sort of took over the American economy in the immediately uh, post-war period as such that it is now uh, virtually impossible to disentangle from the fundamental uh, structure of the American healthcare system. Right. And what we're seeing in the in the current uh, debate is that the decision was made by the Obama administration to try and build something on top of the existing structure since the previous attempt to sort of level a bit more of it and and start over, although that was certainly not a pure let's go to single pair either. Uh, So what is the, how would you go back in time and uh, perhaps, uh, you know, killing Woodrow Wilson only if absolutely necessary, how would you uh, adjust this? Well, I think that the fundamental thing that you have to do really at this point is, is keep uh, the United States out of World War II, which has its own terrible knock-on effects. At some point, you may have to just say the U.S. healthcare system is like the, the London Blitz or the 10 million dead Russians. It's just the, 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 the price we paid for uh, stopping fascism. But I, th- I think that if you can't go back and kill Hitler to uh, fix the U.S. healthcare system, then there either needs to be uh, some methodology by which you prevent wage and price controls from being installed during World War II, which is difficult given the generally progressive tenor of the times. Or you need to, uh, at some point, force the question, uh, get um, uh, some sort of universal health care system put in either by Truman when he has that brief window of, of possibility in the late 40s or have um, uh, Teddy Kennedy actually uh, agree to uh, Nixon's plan for a uh, Medicare for all type model in the 70s so that it could then uh, be going catastrophically over the entitlement cliff with the rest of the American entitlement structure and could be reformed of a piece. But that is uh, very much a ducks and drakes sort of situation. Well, the, the advantage of uh, getting Tenny Kennedy to do something is that does fit into your already well-established pre, uh, MO of supplying single malt scotch to people and uh, whispering into their ear. Precisely. My, my inveigling over a drink um, uh, strategy works excellent well for getting Teddy Kennedy to do something. Um, I think that, uh, again, this is a fairly tricky uh, batch of, of playing around, and certainly what you might very possibly wind up with is some sort of more catastrophic American uh, bankruptcy uh, in uh, the the late crash, as you know, the uh, the, the the capital markets are, are are once more suffused by even more unsustainable government debt. So I, I think that um, 
I would I would like to go uh, and try and get rid of Woodrow Wilson on the, the uh, possible theory that uh, you don't wind up with uh, so quite so many progressives uh, in the halls of American uh, business and politics uh, in the uh, 1940s when they're making up uh, both wage and price controls and uh, the uh, em- employee connected healthcare uh, policy. But um, if 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 uh, if that doesn't work, I'm afraid we do have to risk the chronal storms and uh, send me back to World War One to keep Hitler in the trench that's going to be shelled um, in uh, ten minutes. And I guess if I have to um, uh, get Hitler drunk, then that's just the price I have to pay. Well, uh, perhaps this is then your opportunity to uh, resubmit your proposal uh, to Time Incorporated on the uh, grounds of the general noxiousness of uh, Woodrow Wilson. So perhaps you could lay out the general case uh, for Woodrow Wilson uh, being the most pernicious influence of the 20th century. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, if you uh, look at uh, what his uh, administration accomplished, is the first uh, president to uh, see the Constitution as an obstacle to be got around as opposed to a constraint on his governance. And this is in the political science texts that he wrote as a historian at Princeton, even. If you look at his uh, policy, he's the first president to give the State of the Union address in public. Uh, uh, so it's, it's the birth of the imperial presidency, the presidency of, of charisma, as he called it, as opposed to the presidency of of reason and acting as a political actor constrained by the rest of the system. He famously resegregates the civil service in uh, the United States, setting back uh, race relations for, you know, at least 40 years. He uh, gets us into World War I with the various god-awful um, uh, effects that that uh, has, uh, not, uh, not only the millions of extra deaths and the Spanish flu that kills another 40 or 50 million people around the world, but also lays the groundwork for our old pal Hitler to rise to power, along with, you know, Lenin and uh, Ataturk and a number of other uh, unsavory characters. And so what was the, the driving force of Wilson's personality that uh, led him to uh, get all of these rocks rolling down the hill? Uh, the, the driving force of his personality was that he was uh, very, very smart. He was a, a, a well-respected historian and academic. He was president of Princeton University, uh, who just seemed very irritated that not everyone was uh, agreed that since he was very, very smart, he should always get his way. And uh, we see this same uh, character trait in other people in American history. But in Woodrow Wilson, he had it at that sort of uh, crucial crisis moment when the, uh, the the countries of Europe, for example, are turning towards the precursors to fascism and state-directed societies, and in some cases directly into fascism and state-directed society, uh, and uh, the American uh, ethos, uh, while uh, more resistant to such things than most, is still you know part of uh, the Western world in the uh, 19-teens and still subject to that same sort of hubristic notion that reconstructing the economy, the reconstructing the society, reconstructing the government can be done if you just have enough smart people do it. And uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, believed with some justification that he was, uh, that as the smartest guy in any room he happened to be in, that he should be the guy um, uh, who got his way all the time. So we often look at, at history and ask ourselves whether they're the so-called great man theory of history pertains that the opportunity of a single person who has uh, the influence to make things happen uh, has huge ripple effects in history. And I guess uh, this might be the converse of that is the giant dick theory of history, where uh, someone was in the 
uh, right place at the right time and had the intellectual arrogance to uh, cause a whole lot of unpredictable trouble. Yeah, and uh, and believe me, um, either as a uh, further episode of uh, Ken's Time Machine or a further episode of That Thing Ken Always Says, I have not even begun to scratch the surface of uh, of Woodrow Wilson's infamy. So um, uh, there is there is much more uh, water in that well. So how far back would you have to go to uh, prevent all of this infamy? Well, to prevent his infamy, it shouldn't be too terribly difficult, uh, given the narrowness of his victory in uh, 1912, caused only because Teddy Roosevelt got crazy and uh, ran against President Taft, I would say that uh, it may be the simplest thing to do would be simply to keep Teddy Roosevelt from running for president. And that obviously involves um, giving him some other awesome project to uh, occupy his time. Uh, and whether that is uh, the United States offered to take uh, uh, the Congo away from Belgium to sort of end the grotesque horror that was uh, King Leopold's Congo Free State. And if the concert of European powers had agreed to uh, turn the Congo over to America, we probably could have gotten Teddy Roosevelt off to run it. And while the Congo is not going to be a paradise in any rational alternate history, it's certainly going to be vastly better if run by Teddy Roosevelt than if run by even the, the kindest of Belgians, uh, which who it turns out were not the guys in charge of running the Congo at any time. So giving him a, 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 an awesome project of that ilk might prevent him from running in 1912, which means that uh, Woodrow Wilson is buried electorally by William Howard Taft and uh, his particular pernicious notions of arrogance and um, uh, and uh, uh, patriarchal do-gooderism do uh, stay, at the very least, a um, uh, subsumed part of both political parties, as opposed to the dominant strain in American political discourse uh, for the rest of the century. So I'm picturing a chrono stream where uh, you and Teddy Roosevelt, instead of uh, uh, Heart of Darkness occurring, are uh, headed down the... Uh, uh, which river would you be headed down in the Congo? We'd probably be headed down the Congo River. You'd be headed down the Congo River, uh, perhaps uh, both of you with a, a gin in your hand, and uh, you securing the knowledge that you had uh, once again repaired history for the better. Right, and uh, the gin, of course, would be medicinal in this purpose because uh, it uh, prevents malaria. Well, I, I think uh, in that case we've uh, come to another uh, end of another episode, and we've uh, looped around into another thing that you always say. So perhaps later we will further explore the perniciousness of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, but until then, having once again succeeded valiantly in our goal of talking about stuff, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Find our website at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Leave comments, words of adoration, and questions for our Ask Ken and Robin segment. Or seek us on your social media platform of choice. On Twitter, I'm at Kenneth Height. And I'm at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.